Hello, Matt. Welcome to the uh, the Hustle and the Powers podcast. How's things today? Yeah, good. Thank you. Very busy talking around new deals and getting completions over the line. So that's good fun today. Happy days, happy days. So, Matt, so for people who don't know who you are, who are you and, and what do you do? So, I'm a specialist mortgage broker. Um, work with a company called Rainstone Money. And I specialise in bridging and buy-to-lets predominantly, but I can help with commercial lending as well. Yeah, and you've been doing that for, for some years, haven't you, Matt? We had a little brief discussion before before you come on and, and, and you've worked for most of the big guns and now you're, you're doing it yourself and, and, and obviously smashing it. Yeah, so yeah, I've been in finance world for give or take about 15 years. Variety of industry lenders, banks, specialist banks, different roles, business banking, you name it, I've pretty much done it. And still love the game, Matt? Yeah, yeah, the game's always changing, it's always evolving and how you obviously play the game is constantly evolving with it as well. Yeah, yeah. So let's start off with a biggie then. Where where the rates go from here? What do you think? <laughs> so rates, where do they go? I think obviously they've got to or they will come down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be how long does it take to get back to not where we were because it was in the false economy. But I think we're going to end up landing with a base three to three and a half percent. But we won't get to that figure this year. Possibly by the end of next year, it all varies. Um, obviously, inflation crept up slightly this week, um, and we're still waiting for the impact of all the issues that's going on with the tankers in the sea and so forth. So, I think maybe the next three or four months, hopefully, we'll see a bit of stability with the swap rates and the interest rates, um, and lenders giving us a little bit of stability, but giving us some good rates with that stability as well, because we've still got a bit of a mismatch on, especially yeah. on the specialist side with some of the term lenders at the moment. Yeah. How is the specialist side at the moment? Is that is that sort of the same? Is that a little bit rocky or what, what's that saying? So it's opening up is probably the best way. This year, I think it's opening up a lot more. You've got a lot more new investors that are open to getting involved this year. I think the media hasn't been as negative as what it was last year. Um, so a lot of people are opening their eyes a bit more and appreciating this is the market we're in. There are deals out there to be had, whether it's a flip within BRRRR, mm. or you've obviously got the big ones that are coming through at the minute, which is the R2R and the service accommodation. Um, but you've still got the deals out there for the HMO conversions and, like I say, your standard flips. Yeah. So the market on the specialist side is good, it's strong, it's picking up. Um, and we've got a few of the lenders that are reviewed and they're in the process of reviewing their rates and criteria. Um, I think one of the big things in the specialist side at the minute is the lender application fees. Um, they've, the lenders have adjusted these at the back end of last year, the last quarter, to involve more of a mixture. So you've got some that are doing 2%, 3%, 5%, 7%, 10%. Um, but when you do the end figures, and the leverage it can get people because obviously the interest rates are adjusted varying on those. Um, It does work because there's been a bit of a disparity around the rental yields and income to the property value, which I think is still settling down and sorting itself out this year. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always been, I've always been the type to, 
it sounds terrible not 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 care about rates but my strategy has always been buy a decent house and get as much money as out as, as i can and obviously if it, if it cash flows nicely happy days and in the recent years i've obviously at, at first that was great because the rates were so low but now as the rates have creeped up i've sort of noticed it so that's why i'm sort of going into the hmo market rather than single lets because it's all good pulling your money out and, and getting as much money as you can out and you know getting a free house if you like like people say i don't know what your thoughts are yeah but then when you when you're buying it and you you know you're six months down the line you've got your money back out but you're cash flowing 100 200 quid if something goes wrong a boiler or something you you know you're at a loss for the month so and it, well if it's a boiler you're at a, a loss for a you know a good few months so that's why i've decided to go for the for the hmos now but but yeah it's it's it's, it's an interesting one and i like i say i've only really started realizing about rates recently and and how how crazy they can impact when when it's it when it's going all well you don't really think about them that much do you <laughs> yeah i think what i say to everyone i talk to and all my clients is literally you they say where do you think it's going to go should i hold off for a couple of months etc etc um and the thing is you've got to look at the interest rates today you can't look at where they're going to be tomorrow where they're going to be three months down the line because obviously when trust come out and did her speech no one knew the impact of her opening her mouth was going to have basically overnight mm. so who knows if that could happen again you've got to look at where they are today and if you're happy with that return you're getting that's what you do if you're not happy with that return then you make your choice based on that um, and i think that's the key thing that people have got to look at now is like you say that cash flow as well you might get that property where you get all your money out, but your cash flow is only a hundred, two hundred pound a month, yeah. which is all good and well if you've got a large portfolio of them. But if you've just got that one single property, or you're not planning to grow a portfolio, mm. then you are running that risk because, like you say, a boiler, two to five grand, mm. that's your year's income on that one property yeah. gone. And then obviously you've got to factor in the capital growth side because if your return on that property is generally that small of that 100 to 150 pound, you're probably not going to be in an area where it's got massive capital growth. Um, you're in it more for the passive income. Yeah. So again, that's another investor variable strategy that needs to be considered when you're looking at that bigger picture and what you do and how long you lock in for it's not as simple as black and white yeah it's cra it's crazy like like you just said then about the Liz trust thing how how impactful certain things could be that's why it's best to just leave it up to the experts with yourself obviously even the experts don't know where the rates are going to go it's just a, it's it's a guess really isn't it it's hard but um it, it it's crazy what can impact the, the mortgage market it's mad trying to get your head around it so yeah that's the thing and i think a lot of people that don't necessarily know the investment side um, and have only ever had their residential mortgage um, and haven't really done any research or had to do any research onto the other side, just think it is purely the Bank of England base rate. Um, you use the two words of swap rates. Mm. No one has a clue what they are. Um, I say that as in the people that haven't obviously done the research, but they impact the interest rates. Obviously, you've got the lenders, especially in a specialist space where they've got funding lines. 
they've got to get their return. They'll get a pocket of money from different funding lines to allocate to this level, this case, this risk, that risk. And that's what, again, a lot of people don't see from that lender side of the fence, what goes into them getting to where their rates are as an output. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, again, where my knowledge from being on that side of the table can really give me a bit of a different insight to different lenders and how they're funded and how they have the different pockets and how it works. Yeah. Because you may see a lender that will come out suddenly would drop 1% of their interest rate on a certain level of buy to let or whatever else. And that'll be because of their risk weighting behind the scenes, funding lines, pockets of money from this funding line, because it will be there for a period of time. So sometimes it is, if you see it, you need to jump on that bandwagon. It's like when you used to get the sales in shops. Although the sales now seem to be 365 days a year, you used to have like the Christmas sales, which was purely Boxing Day yeah. onwards. Um, and you would have queues around the front doors of shops to take advantage of it. Obviously, that market's changed and the property market's changed as well. Yeah. So there is a lot more variables to consider. Um, and same with like bridging, like I was saying to you earlier around bridging, there's a lot of variables. You've got bridging lenders that will do rates at 0.75.8 up to 1.3, which when you're looking at a monthly cost, that's a big range. But all of those lenders that do that bridging have a place. Mm. It may be that you need a certain loan to value level. So you might need somebody that will go up to 80 or percent net day one. Yeah. Or you might need somebody that can turn it around in two weeks. Yeah. So that's where mortgage brokers really add their value and worth is understanding what you wish to achieve, what your goal is, what that deal is. So then look at what lenders they're going to look at. Mm. Um, Because through experience, you'll know who can achieve that timeline, who will if there's a quirk in it, who will use a logical approach, who will be awkward, who will need this, who will need that. So that's really where the variables come into play and mortgage brokers are truly worth their waiting gold. Yeah, 100%. I would never, ever not pay a mortgage broker. I could not get my head around going on the internet and like doing a sort of compare the market type of thing. That, that to me is, I, if anyone does that, they need to stop. I think it's, I, I, I find it bizarre. Maybe a few years ago, even then, I would never do it. I've always, always paid a mortgage broker, and I always continue to will because I know how how important they are and for the price you're paying them. Like you say, they're worth the weight in gold. But for people who don't understand them, what are some of the costs that come with bridging? Because you obviously have everything. You have your exit fees, your entry fees. You there's loads, isn't there? So, what are some of the common costs that come with bridging? So, obviously, with bridging, you've got your arrangement fee which is a nice, normally around 2% mark, give or take. Um, again, there's variables on that. You've got the few that would do exit fees, but they're not as common now on bridging as what they used to be. Normally, you're sort of tied in for one month, and then you can exit afterwards. Um, you've got your usual surveyors, legal fees, admin fees. Mm-hmm. They're the standard costs. I think the biggest thing on the bridging is necessarily understanding what you're going to get day one, yeah. Um, which is then comes down to the interest. It's whether you're doing a retained, rolled up or service. Um, and then obviously the impact of that is as well is how long you get the bridging for. Mm. And I think sometimes 
as an investor, especially a new one, they'll think, right, it's two months to do the refurb works. I'm going to sell it within three months. I only need a bridge for five. Yeah. And that's where you have to kind of have that conversation and go, well, what if that gets delayed by one month for the works? What if you don't sell it to the first person that comes and views it because we're not really in a market now where the first person comes and they buy straight away? Yeah. Um, and what if the completion takes three months because they're in a chain? Yeah. So a key thing with bridging is actually understanding that timeline and adding on a few months because you don't want to be getting to that final end of that bridging and not having your exit sorted Yeah, because that's where it can become costly. And yeah. that's where, like I say, having that mortgage broker to help and guide and understand. And I think the key thing is the mortgage broker is our title, but really we are more of a trusted advisor. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree with that. Go on. Sorry, sorry, Matt. I'll let you crack on. Sorry, go on. Yeah, only because we've kind of you see deals where they're doing the same level of refurbs. You get an idea of rough cost. You get an idea of rough timeframes. You can bold build all of that into the picture. Um, and like I say, the key thing is understand the client. Are they exiting buy to let or sell? Because again, buy to let. As you said, the six month period earlier, if you're buying a property under market value and unless you've done works to add value, you have to hold it for six months, generally with a lot of lenders before you can remortgage. There are some that will allow you to do it earlier than at the true market value, but that is always a little bit more interest. Um, but if you've done works and added value, then you can remortgage earlier than that six month period. So again, there's little quirks and grey areas where different lenders will and different lenders won't. Um, so it is truly understanding what's your goal with that property. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think you you is definitely worth your weight in gold in terms of like like a lot of people. I I, I think but if you, if you don't understand bridging, it can be scary, and there is a lot of risks to it, and brokers will, will obviously run you through that like yourself um but especially with like flips and stuff like that like you mentioned earlier if you got a house and you say right i'm gonna do it in two months sell it in three months but one in three houses fall through don't they so and that i think that is it it could even be one in two i think i, I don't know it's, it's one in three the statistic but i used to work on an agent and i and he, i remember this one guy who was on a bridge and he was selling the house i've never seen a man so stressed he was he was selling a house and it was just one of them houses that just literally it, it just it, it it get the offer and then it'd be going for three months and then someone would pull out last minute and I remember at the time I was just starting to learn about property and bridging and stuff like this and I remember him saying oh I'm on a bridge of we're eleven months in and and my buyers just pulled out and you know we've only got one month left and I was thinking wow that that that's some scary stuff like but I bet you've seen some horror stories in your time though. Yeah, there's a fair few, to be fair. Um, I think with the bridging, it is key to have that plan A, plan B um, around what you're doing, knowing that it can work on a buy-to-let just in case you do have to go down that route rather than sell. Um, there are more bridging lenders now where you can rebridge, mm. which there never really used to be. It was always sort of that dirty word of rebridge. Um, 
but there are lenders out there that can do that. But then obviously that's another cost that then eats into your yeah. potential profits and you don't know necessarily how long you're going to be on that either. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of variables, but without a doubt, bridging has a massive place and can really work for you mm. on those deals, especially like you say, the flips, because obviously you've got works, you've got the purchase, there is a lot of cost to be considered into that. Um, but you do generally get the end profits from that GDV. So as long as you factor in that right numbers and allow the excess for potential overrun of time, costs and so forth, again, it's, yeah, it's a product that just works wonders for you in the right way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously going back to the rates, are you seeing that in the Northwest, in the northwest, a lot of um, single letters have been working really well the past few years with the rates being low. But I imagine where you are, southwest and stuff like that, a lot of people are probably doing HMOs anyway. Um, are you seeing a lot more people moving to the HMO market with the rates going so high, or what, what? What are you seeing? So HMOs obviously had a little bit of a blip last year around with the government looking at taxing the rooms individually. Um, and potentially putting a few more hurdles around HMOs. But the tax thing has disappeared now, mm. and there is more and more people going into the HMO conversions, um, especially to be fair where I am in the southeast. Yeah. There's a lot of it going on. Um, and what you're seeing is they're not just HMOs, they're nice HMOs. Yeah. They aren't just your usual fold-up bed or low-level. They're high-level. They're like five-star hotel rooms. Yeah. Um, so they are being done in the right way, and they're targeting more professionals than necessarily just people that can't or aren't able to afford a full house on their own mm. because obviously the cost of that has gone up. Um, but they are looking at, I know people that are doing them near hospitals because obviously you have doctors, a lot of them do come from abroad yeah. and obviously they're spending a lot of time in the hospital. They're not at home as often. So the up, upper class, upper level, I can't think of the right word I'm trying to say, but the higher level HMOs, when you look at some of them, they, yeah, they're phenomenal. Yeah. Whereas the model used to be for HMOs, keep your costs as low as possible. And that way you still got your money in. And in six months, if you had to replace a bed or whatever else, it was tuppence. Yeah. And it's flipped on its head. Um, just the only thing with HMOs, you've got to bear in mind Article 4 um, and areas like that, because those areas are coming up a bit more. But like you say, I think you're seeing a lot more around the country as well, not just in the southeast. Yeah. Is there Article 4 where you are at the moment? or? Yeah, there are in certain areas. Um, yeah. And if you're looking to get into the HMO conversions, that's one of the key things you need to check is whether there is, because obviously that would affect whether you need planning or just a license. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say in the last couple of years, when I've been dealing with some HMO refinances, the landlords have had a license, but not planning. Yeah. Um, and that is one thing people have got to remember, especially if they're buying ones that are already HMOs. Mm. Check whether it needs both, because you can get given a license, 
without planning, which you need sometimes, mm. because the two departments don't seem to talk. So just do your background research if you're buying a HMO to make sure it has the right licenses, permissions, because otherwise you'll go to your finance for it and it will bite you in the backside. Yeah. Yeah, we I, I see a lot of people around our way sort of buying HMOs with like the grandfather rights and stuff like that, that like you said, are still from years ago, that just when the mentality was keep the costs low and stuff like that. But now, like you say, it's definitely not like that anymore. If you go on spare, if you go on spare room, you can see, can't you, that the the effort's being put on in. Don't get me wrong; there's still a few shabby ones, but um, yeah, but but the, most of them are lovely and and even have their own little kitchenettes and stuff like that with the en suites. And it's more like a it's more like a studio flat now, isn't it? Some of them. Um, yeah. some of the, I've heard, like I say, I'm not too sure, but I've heard are some of the lenders a bit funny sometimes if you put them kitchenettes in them and stuff like that. So. It depends. There are certain lenders that will look at it in a certain way. Yeah. Um, you have got certain lenders that I'd probably class as HMO specialists. Mm. And you've got other ones that kind of dibble dabble their toes in, but don't commit. Mm. Um, and again, when you say a kitchenette, how much of a kitchen are you putting in there? Yeah. That's the key question is, are you putting a full kitchen? So now you are creating a studio flat yeah. or are you just putting a microwave and a fridge? Yeah. So it, that's the key question is just understanding what you're putting in. And like you say, a lot of them now that are doing the a bit more in their rooms and the HMOs, they may have that under the counter fridge. They may have a little bit of a worktop. It may come with a microwave. Mm. you won't see them in there with full range ovens and stuff like that yeah that's then when it becomes an issue if you're creating a flat basically rather than yeah a room yeah and how how will how will lenders with the um because obviously you can get your standard maybe four bed house change it into a six bed hmo um what are the is is there much difference in in is there much difference in the lender's perspective of doing a sort of four bed normal residential house or a six bed to like a commercial conversion, do they look at that much differently or they look at in more risk or? So again, you'll have some lenders that will only do HMOs up to six bed. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously you've got your commercial ones under Sui Genere, however you pronounce that one. I always struggle with that one. Mm -hmm. um, that would then do those ones. So with those ones that are larger, a lot of the time the lender will ask, right, okay, so you're now doing a 10-bed HMO, how many kitchens does it have? Mm -hmm. Because I've seen some before that have had two, three kitchens. And that's then where sometimes lenders get a bit uncomfortable because it can't be turned into a normal resi. It reduces options. What is the actual plan for the property? Are you going to do something after in relation to splitting it into three different properties? And it's just a few more questions that they ask. Um, and then obviously the key thing is they're entrusting the surveyor to go out and view it and will then make their calls as well and go on their advice yeah. around the property. So it's one of those, I think, where if you're doing the larger ones or it may have certain questions, when the surveyor does go out, make sure you are there because sometimes they'll get a friend or the builders or whatever to let the surveyor in. But I think it's key that as the owner of it 
and the one who's got the plans, you're there to discuss that with the surveyor. Because again, you're running through what you're planning to do, how it's going to work and stuff like that. They may be able to share a little bit of a nugget of why don't you do this or whatever else. But also it allows you to paint your full picture to that surveyor. So you know they've got a clear understanding with no assumptions made what you're doing with that property. Yeah, that's interesting that. So do you always recommend, because that's a, that's a, that, that's something that in the past that I've thought, because obviously with a single let, you know, when you're trying to get a higher valuation, what are your thoughts on going to see the surveyor valuation pack? I've, I've always thought it's a bit maybe, I don't know, tell them how to suck eggs, but I've seen people doing it, it tends to work. What are your thoughts on that? I think it, I don't see a problem with it. I think at the end of the day, it's better off. Hmm. And I think you should always be there because like I say, you might gain something from it yourself. Surveyors do it day in, day out. They see everything under the sun, hmm. property wise. And for you to be able to pick out and ask them questions as well at the same time, because generally they are quite open to conversation. And you can pick some nuggets, maybe if it's not for that one, it's for the next one, or understand how they look at stuff. At the end of the day, knowledge is power. Mm. The more knowledge you have, the more you can put into what you're doing and get what you want to achieve from it. Mm. So don't get me wrong, what you then may say, I'm not saying go there and like get them in a headlock and say, this is what I'm doing, this is what I want, get it done. But it's having a open and genuine conversation um, yeah. and people appreciate that he may not listen they yeah. may I say he could be a she yeah. um, they may not listen they may not appreciate what you're saying they may look at it in a different view but you know that you've shared you've put across your piece and the outcome is the outcome if you're not there and they make an assumption that this is going to be that, that's going to be this, this is going to be the end. You can appeal it, but you're never going to get your picture across the same as you would if you were standing next to them discussing it. Yeah. That's an interesting take on it. I've, um, I remember, I, I've never, to be honest, I've never done it. I, I, I created a sort of valuation pack on my first one. And um, I created a valuation pack on my first one. And I went, I went, I went there with my valuation pack and he must have got there early and I seen him driving off. And I, I know most of the surveyors in my area because like I say, when I worked in the agents, I knew which one downvalued, I knew which one was a bit, you know, happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. So I knew, I knew them all. There was one we used to call the Grim Reaper because he literally, all he, ever, <laughs> all, he, all he ever used to do was on value. We used to, we used to hate him in the office, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I knew which ones were which and obviously you can't, you can't control who's coming to your house on the day, but I've never, I've never done it again. I was going to do it on my last one, but the, the, the uh, mortgage company, company wanted to see an AST, so the tenants were in there and it was awkward and I thought, you know what, yeah, I can't be bothered meeting them there, I can't be bothered with it all, but yeah, it's, it's a good take on it, that. It's an interesting take. Um, one thing I will ask about bridging, because a lot of people ask this, um, obviously with bridging rates, it's at the moment maybe, what, what is a bridging rate at the moment typically? Like I say, they vary. You've got some at 0.75 up to 1.3, I would have probably said, when you're really looking at a proper quirky thing. Yeah. So that's monthly, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's a monthly basis. Yeah. Because it could, I, I spoke to a few people and it's confused a lot of people where 
They're like, well, how come a, a you know a, a mortgage payment rates on three percent, and then you've got that point three or point you know point nine, and it's um it's it's much higher. But obviously, it's a monthly versus a yearly, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing with the bridging. You when you're looking at obviously the monthly rate, depending upon what you're doing. If you're doing a heavy refurb, then you may be on it longer than a year. So then the yearly rate comes into play a bit more. But generally, you're on it less than a year. And that's why you need to look at that on a monthly basis. Yeah. Do you, would you say it's investor dependent? Um, it's on your, it's investor dependent on whether you, you get it all rolled into one, you pay at the end, you pay at the start. Do, do you think it's investor dependent and, and what your cash flow is like? Massively, because you've got, for example, I've got a deal I'm looking at at the moment. Um, I've got a lender that will do a standard bridge that will give you a percentage of the purchase. But I've also got the lender that will also do covering the cost of works. But how they work out the interest on the two different deals, one will retain it day one, so your net's much lower. The other one will roll it up, which means your net day one is higher. They're providing you the cash flow for your works as well. But you've just got to then bear in mind that when you then either remortgage or sell that property, that's then when obviously your redemption fee will be higher, but day one it gives you the more cash flow. Yeah. So it's all down to what cash you've got, how you want to make it work, and what you need. Yeah. How how can because I know some even give the like you said like you mentioned then that the, they'll give the refurb money and stuff like that. How come sometimes they will, sometimes they won't? Does it is it is that deal dependent? Is it? So a lot of the time that's lender dependent. Um, you've got some that won't cover the cost of works, that, but they may give you 80% net day one. Um, you've got others that may cover the cost of works, but only give you 68, 69% day one, mm-hmm. but then cover the works. Um, so it is totally down to what the deal is, what money you need. But also the other key thing is time frame, mm. because you may have some lenders that can do that and do it in three to four weeks. So if you're doing an auction purchase, for example, generally your completion is four to six weeks. So that time frame is imperative because although you can extend auction completion dates normally by a two week period, you do have to have to pay for that. So a big thing is when you're doing those is you're committing to completing four weeks. So everyone from day one needs to be on that four week period. So this is then where you've got so many different bridging lenders. You may need to go to that one that's not the point eight, maybe point nine five. Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme, I know and I can say to you, right, we will get this done in four weeks with this lender. Or I've got this as another option, but I'm not a hundred percent confident that they'll get it done in the four week period. Mm. So it's like I say, there's so many variables to be considered. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll get people that'll ask me and go, what's the rough bridging figures you reckon on this deal? I'll go, well, I can give you a rate bracket, but there's more variables that we need to understand and consider before I can give you more precise figures. Mm. And I sometimes say to people for your own maths, work it off 1% a month. Mm. which is kind of in the middle, but to the higher end of the rate. And if it works on 1%, 
then it works because we'll get you a deal more than likely less than one percent a month. Yeah. Um. So it's seeing how serious they are as well because you don't want to be the broker that will go to lenders constantly asking for rates on this deal that deal that deal give me some figures ask a lender 10 lots of figures in that one week and not really come through with any yeah all because they're sort of pie in the sky deals so again it's understanding having that conversation with the end client to see are they serious are they just after rough figures because you can kind of work the rough figures yourself anyway yeah if they need exact then it's appreciating what they're doing and are they serious on this deal to go and get them the exact figures yeah that's that's um that's interesting and i know because lenders some lenders get a bit touchy say of maybe someone come to you and uh, is this right is this right correct me if i'm wrong but say if someone come to you and then someone went to another advisor and um, they give you the deal and then they give them the deal and they've gone to the same lender. Is, is that something they get a little bit touchy about, isn't it? So it's from the lenders and BDM's perspective, and obviously talking from when I worked for lender and was a BDM, you look at the deal and you see it kind of and you think, I swear I saw this one the other day. And I, I did, it's the same deal. Um, you have to be mindful of giving back the same figures because some lenders will have preferential agreements or rates with certain brokerages, mm. but you've got to sort of be transparent. Yeah. It, it's not the ideal situation by far, and it can sometimes create an awkward position, mm. but it's surprising how little it happens yeah in the grand scheme because bear in mind the amount of obviously investors the amount of brokers the amount of lenders it doesn't happen as often as we would all think it does mm. but also at the same time really you should be confident with the broker you've gone to and that's then where the personal relationship the initial conversation is crucial mm. because if you're an investor, you will get some investors that will plummet to four or five different brokers because they just want the deal and don't necessarily want the relationship or see where we can add our extra bit of value. Whereas if you have that initial conversation, have that build that little bit of relationship and rapport and build that bit of trust they will generally end up dealing with just you and not any other brokers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah, it does happen, but not as often as we think. Yeah, that's it. And, and like, like we touched on before, that's why, that's why you've always, I, I think that you should always, and especially in bridging as well, always use an expert because you could go to a bridger yourself. And like you say, it might be poor, uh, point two cheaper, but, if they can't complete in four, you, you've got the inside information and you know full well if they're going to be able to complete in four weeks on an auction purchase or not. And yeah. I think of anything worse than trying to push a bridge to complete in four weeks. You're three weeks in, you know you've got to, you know, you know you've got to complete on this property within a week. Um, just because you wanted to save yourself a few quid and go direct to the lender, it's just it's just not worth it, in my opinion. 
yeah, I think that's where we had it. But I think there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes as well between the brokerage, the lender, solicitors that we not shield the client from, but we take care of on behalf of the client. Hmm. Um, they might see one email, but yet we have done 20 emails yeah. and stuff like that. Or a complication might come up. Like I had a limited company that had charges registered on it from three years ago that should have been removed. Mm. Um, and it was holding up the deal. So we had to try and find the original solicitors, another solicitor that was involved or the accountants to then try and work out who needed to satisfy it, how we could evidence it, whether we could get an exception to progress on the basis that we was dealing with it, like a post-completion. It There was a lot of groundwork outside and knowledge and sort of help where the client's just like that should have been cleared what what do i need to do how do i get rid of it where do i go and again that's sometimes where that knowledge of the advisor can direct and steer and take that stress away sometimes it is just putting that hand on someone's shoulder obviously not necessarily because it could be anywhere in the country but hand on the shoulder and going don't worry we'll get it sorted Give me an hour, I'll come back to you or with a plan of action. It's that it takes his, the stress away. Because we know when anyone buys their first property, whether it's residential or investment, the stresses that come with it, the sleepless nights that come with it. And we take a lot of that away. Mm. Um, we take a lot of frustration away because lenders can be nitpicky is probably the best way of putting it sometimes with certain things or awkward or not as logical as we would hope they would be and sometimes you'll then feed that to the client and say this is what we need to do to tick this box or whatever else and the client has that logical look of well why why can't we just do this why can't we do that and if we wasn't that person in that middle the the relationship between the lender and that end client could be very toxic's the wrong word mm. but no one could end up being satisfied whereas we'll take the brunt of the client of the frustration we'll take the brunt of the frustration from the lender and also have our own frustrations in that middle part as well mm. so there's a lot to the role it isn't just ticking boxes especially at the moment with the market obviously the last 10 years as we were saying before the market a broker would get a deal it would fit there'll be no issues it was straightforward and simple whereas now if you ask any mortgage broker that deals with the specialist investment side how many deals now sell through you probably get a single figure um out of 100 brokers for example because things need to be looked at in different ways or and stuff like that so it's there's a lot more to it now than i think there ever has been yeah yeah that's interesting mate very interesting so i i wanted to touch on obviously like like i mentioned earlier you're clearly an expert in, in this you've been doing it for some years you've worked for all the you've you worked for the big guns you you work for yourself so you've been through it all i know this saturday you're obviously doing a uh, a bridging masterclass webinar i'm not sure if this is going to be out by saturday to be honest but 
if you are doing another one in the end, if you are doing another one, maybe in a couple of months or, or whenever, where is the best place to, to find you, Matt? So it'd be through my Instagram, which is at Matt underscore mortgages. Um, there's normally some valuable insights on there as well, and hints and tips and three minute reads. Um, and on there, obviously, if you want to get part of the WhatsApp group, which will give you access to masterclasses and so forth, get in touch. We can get you bolted in. Um, it is something where my power team's in there and we're going to try and do potentially one every other week. And that would be sort of involved from the mortgage side, accountancy side to make sure it's tax efficient, company structures, expenses and so forth. Um, I've got a development specialist as well and also a surveyor. So we've got all different angles, which we hope to a little bit of a knowledge share Q&A masterclass bi-weekly, I would have said, hopefully. Yeah. And that's all free. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, it's all free. It's only just recently set up. So it's only going to get bigger and stronger in the next sort of six months. Big plans for it. So, yeah, if you're interested, let me know. Well, I'm definitely going to be joining up, Matt. I'm going to I'm going to do it now. And, and if this isn't, I don't think this will be out by Saturday. But what I'll do is I'll do a post to to, to get it out there for you, because I know it's it's very, very valuable with the people you've got in there. You've got some great people in there. So. Firstly, thank you for coming on, Matt, and I appreciate it. And it's been a it's been a great conversation and very insightful. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. No problem at all, mate. I'm sure we'll catch up in the next six months and, and see where things yeah. are and see where the rates Definitely. are. Sounds good. Maybe even like we said before, do like a question and answer session or something like that. If people have any questions, we can always do something like that. Most definitely. I'll I'll put some what I'll start to do, I'll put some um questions on my story and yeah, and we'll we'll get that set up most definitely. Again, thanks so much, Matt, and all the best. I look forward to Saturday for the uh, Bridging Masterclass. You too.